0: In the uh, last 24 hours or so, I felt uh, pretty much in awe of the magnitude of you all's practice here, the meeting each of you have with yourself, and the great challenges, and the sincerity and dedication. It's far from easy to sit in a retreat like this, there are very fundamentally deep issues and conflicts and realities which are being confronted. And, um, I just wanted to express, you know, I sit a little bit in awe, quite a bit in awe of the magnitude of what goes on here. And I hope you realize a little bit that magnitude. The, um, there are not a lot of, um, early accounts in the Buddhist scriptures of the Buddha's enlightenment or the quest for his enlightenment. But one of the few passages that talk about his decision to go out and seek for liberation um, has it this way, where the Buddha said, or he considered, it doesn't seem proper or appropriate for me who am am subject to sickness, old age, and death, that I should seek after other things which have the nature of sickness, old age, or death. Rather than seeking after things which have the nature of impermanence and death, let me seek that which is um, unaging, unailing, and that which is deathless, and so it was that quest for the deathless, for something outside of the, in a sense, perhaps, outside of the realm of our impermanent life that the Buddha was seeking. And he knew, as well as many of us know, that the world of impermanence is a world of both joys and sorrows. And depending on your your, your condition in life, you might feel the sorrows outweigh the joys. So he was seeking, and so he sought for many years. And then, when he sat underneath the Bodhi tree and became enlightened, there are also not very many descriptions of what that experience was like. But the clearest one of the clearest uh, descriptions in the discourses, is that in the early morning of the night of his enlightenment, he was able to uproot or eradicate the three the, the three outflows, the three leaks, the three uh, major forms of craving or clinging, which um, you could say maybe leak our energy, but which are the source of much of our suffering. And the three that uh, were talked about, in the course of his enlightenment are the craving for opinions, beliefs, craving to opinions and beliefs. The craving to becoming, to being something, to being somebody, to creating identity, and the craving to sensual pleasure, to comfort. And I believe that in that the Buddha was liberated of all craving that those three are representative of all forms of craving, even though it might be hard to fit all, fit all of them into those categories. After he was enlightened, he went to... Um, he was disinclined to teach. Mm-hmm. He thought that, well, this was pretty hard for me to attain. And I guess he might maybe have thought kind of, high of him, highly of himself. <laughs> this, is pretty high of my, this is pretty hard for me to attain, so you know, I don't see that I can really teach this to others." And then as the story goes, the great god Brahma came to visit and uh, immediately, as soon as the Buddha had those doubts, and he said to the Buddha, he asked the Buddha to please beat the drum of the deathless. The Buddha had sought after the deathless, had attained the deathless, and then Brahma told him, please, teach. There are people in the world who have little dust in front of their eyes and they will be able to understand you. And so please beat the drum of the deathless. And so the Buddha responded in agreeing to teach. He said, um, the gates of the deathless are open. To me, that's a very powerful statement. The gates of the, death, of the deathless are open, the gate of the timeless, of liberation and nirvana. Of that which doesn't age, get sick, or die, are open. Those are open. So, in a sense, for us to walk through. So, that the theme of the deathless, touching, tasting, attaining the deathless, is a very, was a very important one for the Buddha and for his teachings. And it's a little bit hard for us to understand. And it might be helpful to think of this very fundamental and profound pointing or teachings of the Buddha, that in order for us to understand it, we have to use this now very common, almost maybe American corporate saying, thinking outside the box. You You have to somehow be able to imagine yourself or somehow begin to think outside the box or step outside the box if you really want to get release or liberation or freedom from suffering, from craving, in the way the Buddha was pointing to. And that, in a sense, is a very tall order because many of us are constantly thinking inside of our box. We don't even know we're in a box. So, you know, a lot of good it does for me, Gail, to, to say, you know, think outside the box. Some years ago, so, so, to say, so the deathless is a synonym for nirvana, for enlightenment, for the great peace, the great happiness, for that which is unconditioned, unborn, the ultimate security, the ultimate safety. There are many words like that that the Buddha used to, de- to define or describe the deathless or this experience of liberation. So, some years ago, I was on retreat in um, Angela Center and I was doing walking meditation. And my walking meditation was uh, not particularly concentrated or quiet. The idea of being on retreat in silence that I've that been told about uh, hadn't reached my mind yet. So, I was doing walking meditation and my mind was thinking happily away. And, um, and I was walking back and forth in a pathway, so I'd come to an end, I'd turn around and walk back over the same ground. And I was walking, and I came to the end of my path, I turned around, and I took two or three steps, and then it suddenly dawned on me that I was now standing in exactly the same place I'd been standing three seconds earlier, except I was facing a different direction. And then I said, then I wondered, what happened to those thoughts I had three seconds ago? I'm in the same place, physical place. I looked around. They were nowhere to be found. But three seconds earlier, those thoughts had seemed to be the most substantial thing in the world, the most important thing in the world. Nothing was more important than those thoughts that I was having. Nothing was more real. Three seconds later, I couldn't find them. You know, where were they? Wendy talked about the VRs and VVs, the Vipassana romances and the Vipassana vendettas. M- my way of calling the VV and VRs virtual vendettas and virtual romances. <laughs> because that's usually what they entail. We enter a virtual world, you know. Our minds are the original virtual reality. <laughs> and, um, and we take this mind so seriously. We take these thoughts so seriously. The words the concepts, the beliefs. So I sat there, and I stood there, kind of looking around, where were those thoughts? And they weren't there. And what's on the other side of your thinking? Is there a you outside of thinking? Do you think that your thoughts are you? Is that the assumption you're operating on? Many people do, and many people never even considered it. Many people believe that whatever they think must be true because they've never been told otherwise. Or sometimes people believe that nothing they they think is true. But we take our thoughts very seriously. What's that great peace that's just beyond the thoughts, inside of them, around them, between them? Some teachers will direct meditators, To look for the space between your thinking. And who are you in that space? Do you disappear? If you're not thinking about who you are, do you exist? As soon as you have a thought of who you are, maybe you can be confident you exist. But before you think of who you are, So our thinking... Some of you have heard this many times from me, but this... If someone followed me around and spoke next to me as incessantly in my ear as I speak to myself, (laughs) I would be begging them to stop. Unless, of course, more powerful feelings arose.
1: <laughs>
0: At the, because I mean, it isn't just simply the incessant discussion, but that this person—it's it, so repetitive. <laughs> I mean, how could this person be coming and saying the same thing in my ear 500 times in a day, over and over and over again, same thing over and again? You know, I would think the person, you know, was crazy. But what's really amazing is that every time I have that thought, even if it's been been 500 times, it's just as interesting. And why is that? <laughs> we certainly grab onto those thoughts. We're very interested in them. Partly because our sense of self is very much tied in to our thinking. Our sense of self is so important to us. And the way we orient ourselves to that sense of self and create it and make it and make sense of it is very much to the world of our thinking, our thoughts. Thoughts are beautiful. I have great respect and love for thinking. But there also uh, can be a tremendous trap if we get, you know, if we think that's all there is to who we are. It's, necess- it's really helpful in, in practice if we begin becoming disenchanted with our thoughts. And the word disenchantment is a fascinating word because it's, it's to no longer be enchanted. Disenchantment has maybe kind of negative connotation in English these days. But if you're enchanted, the function of Buddhism is to disenchant you. No question about it. If you're enchanted, to be enchanted with wealth, status, money, relationships, houses great meditation experiences. And I remember some years ago in Ajahn Sumedho's community, maybe Ajahn Sumedho was teaching or someone about how it's a really important um, stage in monastic life, is after the the monk or nun has been there for about five years, and they're no longer enchanted. And, you know, who are these people I'm living with? you know, what's this Buddhism? It's necessary to become even disenchanted with Buddhism. As uh, Kadigiri Roshi said, if it's not boring, it's not Buddhism. <laughs> so I'm afraid many of you are still enchanted.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm afraid that once you start getting disenchanted, some of you will leave. You know, if you're not enchanted, why bother? Practice really begins after you're, once you've become disenchanted. The great story I have, when I was an early Zen student, I sat down to sit zazen up against the wall as they sit with my eyes open, and this huge, majestic Roman column rose up in front of me, like it have in front of banks to show that the banks are stable and secure. And it written across down letters across the column was Z-E-N. Very great, engraved letters. Pretty impressive. I don't know when the hallucination stopped, but what happened was that I then reached forward to grab this column. And as I did so, it vanished, and my forehead hit the wall. <laughs> that got my attention. I realized that I was enchanted with Buddhism. So it's necessary to become disenchanted with our thoughts. It doesn't mean we become unfriendly with them, or it doesn't mean we still appreciate them, or humored by them. But not to take them as being the absolute arbitrator of our existence, or that they're absolutely true, or, or that they represent reality. The famous slogan, again, from our tradition, the American Vipassana tradition, is the saying, the thought of your mother is not your mother. The thought of the great enlightenment you're going to have tomorrow is not going to be that. The thought of the lunch you had yesterday probably isn't the same. Our thinking doesn't represent very accurately what reality really is. It's usually limited. As we know, if someone puts us, in, puts our, us in a category, and sees us through that category, you go, say, wait, I'm much more than that. So to become disenchanted with our thoughts gives us the opportunity to begin approaching the great peace that's possible when we're no longer so enchanted, when we're no longer so powerfully motivated by our thinking, caught by them. So part of what we need to do in this practice of mindfulness is become really students of how we relate to our thinking. Not just the thoughts themselves, but how do we relate to them? Do you take them for granted? Do you take them to be absolutely true? Do you take them to be mistrustful? Do you, how do you, do you have a relationship with them? It's often invisible, our relationship to them. Do you grab onto it? Does a thought come up and that's a juicy one and so... Or do you justify sitting here, my knees have been hurting for three hours, that particular fantasy is a really good one, I deserve it, (laughs) I'm going to take a break, thank you, and off you run in your fantasy. So the first of the great outflows that Buddha freed himself of of was the grasping to opinions and beliefs, which is a very grand expression, grand word, but much more subtly, you know, it means our attachment to concepts, many of them inherited from society around us, learned at a very young age, certain ideas, our attachment to habits of thinking. Just ha- a habit of thinking is a kind of very subtle attachment. Our attachment to um, um, expectation. Expectation is a small attachment to a certain kind of thought. Certain opinion, what we want. And it starts very, at a very young age, this kind of we get it, we get an idea for some reason, and we hold on to it for a lifetime. We see the world and see ourselves through that idea and concept. I remember some years ago in retreat, someone came to me and said that, um, growing up as a very young boy, his mother periodically would say to him, "Chuck is a very nice you know Chuck is a very nice kid, but not very bright." And this had a tremendous impact on his self-image. He carried that with him. I mean, he was attached to that image. I mean, he, you know, it doesn't stay there unless we hold on to it. But, you know, a young child, of course they're going to hold on to it when the mother says that. And then we hold on and there's no, never any reason to think that it's not supposed to be there, that it isn't true. Very deeply ingrained ideas enter into our psyche, that the world is not safe, that the world is safe, that other people are threatening, other people are not threatening, that I'm worthy, that I'm not worthy. Even good concepts of self can can have a little bit of attachment holding on to them. So the attachment to opinions and views is quite profound. The next attachment, the next outflow, is the clinging to becoming, to being, to having an identity, to being somebody. There's nothing wrong with being somebody. We're all somebody. You're not somebody else, (laughs) though. Not lately, at least. But it's okay to be somebody, but it's the holding on to it and, and the creating it. Most of us are are representing ourselves to others all the time. We we have a present. We have a way we want other people to see us. We present our, that side of ourselves to them. We you know. So the becoming and being. When I was a, a young college student, I did a lot of art first. I was kind of pulled into it, and I just loved it. And I was drawing and painting and. It was just a a delight to do it. I took art classes and even declared myself an art major just so I can get into an art class. But then one day, I decided that I was an artist. (laughs) And that was the last day I did art, It was a pretty amazing story, I think. Because then I had to do art in order to fulfill the identity. And I couldn't, I wasn't motivated to do that that reason. So that was it for many years. So, you know, I created an identity and then I had to live, live in it. Or I, I wasn't able to, but... And so we want to become something. We, we have become something and we're holding on to that. We want to become something more, or something less. Some people, when they're wanting to become something, what they want to become is they want to become nobody. And it's great, to become, it's great to be a Buddhist if you want to be nobody because Buddhism teaches nobodies, right? No self. So I've arrived. Finally, a religion that understands me. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody, you know, to be attached to being nobody is as dangerous as, any, as being attached to being somebody. When I was... Um, 13, I lived, it was 1967, and when John was suffering on the hate, (laughs) I was kind of a happy-go-lucky hippie wannabe. (laughs) And um, so I was living in, in a little provincial town in Italy that summer, and I had the longest hair of anyone there which wasn't very long back then, but, you know, I was pulling it to help it grow. <laughs> and I was the only one in town who had blue jeans, being 67, 1967. So I had the longest hair and the only blue jeans in town, and I knew that I was cool. <laughs> and I would go around town with a certain swagger. A certain, I was energized, kind of, you know, up, you know, I was really, you know, this was, had a good feeling for myself. you laughing. <laughs> this is <was> my self identity. <laughs> These things are serious matters, right? And so then I uh, flew, I came back to Los Angeles the end of the summer. And the only thing that transpired was I flew across the Atlantic. But in Los Angeles, everyone else is here. A lot had happened in summer '67, so everybody else is here was a lot longer. And they'd figured out to put their blue jeans in the washing machine 10,000 times <laughs> and to rip them and sew them back together. And it hadn't occurred to me to do that. <laughs> so I wasn't so cool. And, and I felt deflated. I wasn't so energized. I didn't feel so up. And what had, the only thing that had changed was who I was comparing myself to. Who I was in my thusness and who in my actual beingness or whatever, the somebody that I am before I made myself somebody, was, hadn't changed. What it changed was the comparative thoughts that I was latching onto and clinging to. Most of the problematic senses of self that we have are involve comparative thoughts, comparing ourselves to others, comparing ourselves to past selves, to future selves. To imaginary selves. Trying to measure up to some kind of sense of self we think we should be. We're trying to be and become. It's interesting to, to reflect back, those of you who are old enough, where you can do this for over enough decades, to reflect back on some of the fundamentally important concerns about your sense of self that you've had over the decades, and how you're so glad not to have some of them anymore. The, the pimples when you were a teenager. I was so mortified. You couldn't believe. I, I was de- devastated, destroyed. I, when, in seventh grade, my first junior high school dance, At the end of it, my father came onto the dance floor to get me. (laughs) Boy, I somewhat recovered. (laughs) But you know, to watch, you know, how the kind of concerns we have, things that are so important, that as we get older, we have some little bit, oh, you know, we see, we kind of a little bit know better, we know better, we don't see it as being, you know, the pursuit of wealth when we we're young, or status, or pursuit of certain relationships, or the centrality of some things that seem so important to our well-being. Not to, not to knock these things, but necessarily, but how much we had invested in them. And we're so glad when we get older. One 65-year-old woman told me, I finally realized I don't need a man. <laughs> It was such a relief for her. And um I was I was I feel very fortunate that I knew my great grandmother. Last time I went back to Norway where I'm from. I went and stayed with her for a while in her little apartment. And uh, she was in her late eighties, I think, and if you've been to Minnesota you kinda of know the type, I think. She had a kind of white afro and very round red face and very sweet woman. and I would, go, I would go sit with her just to have darshan because, you know, you, I would, we, we wouldn't talk much. She would sit in her rocking chair. She did a lot of lace and knitting and stuff. And, and I don't know really what was going on inside of her, but my sense and why I liked sitting with her, even though we didn't speak, was she was so at peace. It felt like she'd done it all. She no longer needed to be anything for anybody. She didn't need to impress me, or impress herself, or accomplish anything. She could just be, and, she, and her be, just beingness was very peaceful. It helps in practice, it helps in the process of liberation, if we can get disenchanted with the pursuit of being someone, becoming someone. It doesn't mean you can't go to school and get an education, it doesn't mean certain kinds of things, roles in society, are useful to pursue. But the enchantment with it, the idea that that role or that identity or that image or that protected image or is going to somehow do it for us. Or maybe part of it is just a negative image. We don't want us to let people know who we really are. We hide from people. To get disenchanted with this is really essential. So, as we get older, there's some of this wisdom that happens. And um, I think we sometimes we get disenchanted after the fact, sometimes late after the fact, but with some of the things we were enchanted with when we were younger. And I think of Buddhism as a little bit as being a practice of accelerated aging, which, you know, is not, not in the advertisement. You wish you were told earlier? (laughs) (laughs) So you're supposed to get disenchanted. Okay, so then the last of the outflows is the outflows to uh, sensual pleasure, which is a kind of another word of saying um, attachment to comfort, pleasure, Attachment to avoidance of discomfort, of unpleasant things. And when I first heard this teaching in Buddhism, there's a lot of teachings in Buddhism about overcoming attachment to sense pleasures, and I thought that uh, this was a little bit of a life-negating stream of Buddhism, and it wasn't really for me. And but the more I've considered it, and the more I've seen it in my own life, I really I've come to believe, or I've come to see, that the attachment to pleasure and comfort and the the attachment to avoiding discomfort runs phenomenally deeply in our psyche. And that, in fact, it governs a lot of our activity. In fact, sometimes it's almost amoeba-like. Something unpleasant happens, we pull back or we push it away. Something pleasant happens and we go for it and we want it. And there can be huge, sophisticated body of thought and really the motivation at the heart is just amoeba-like, going to pleasure and avoiding it. I think that um, a lot of politics is that way. I think people like something, they feel comfortable, they don't like something, and they can build a whole philosophy of politics based on the fact that simply they don't like something or they like something. Sometimes the avoidance of the suffering in the world, or our own suffering, is not because we're afraid of some great calamity, or because we're afraid of the complexity of the issue. But it can be very simple, simply where we don't want to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it's that simple. When I sat my first Vipassana retreat in Thailand, uh, it was a long retreat, and I had a lot of um, knee pain, and I went to my uh, teacher every day for interview, and I would explain I had all this knee pain, and he'd give me some good advice, and I would put it into practice, and i come back the next day and tell him the pain was worse, and the pain got worse, and I was struggling, and it was quite hard for me, and... He'd give me great advice. And then one day, after a few days of this, the American who was translating for me, American monk, uh, Atapemo, uh, said to me um, as I was leaving, he leaned over to me and said, You're really attached to your pain. <laughs> and that shook me up a little bit because I couldn't imagine anyone be attached to pain. But I kind of, it was such an odd thing to him to say that I thought about it for a while, and I realized how true it was. I realized that, that my aversion to the pain was a tremendous form of attachment. And when I saw that attachment, the pain didn't go away, but it became okay to have it. And the most intense pains I've had in practice, physical pains, have been resolved for me, not when they went away, but when I was no longer bothered by them. And bothered because, you know, resistance and aversion and self-pity and all these things that build up around pain are all really where the genesis, really where the heart of the suffering resides. And when you can allow the physical pain to be there and not be bothered by it, it's possible to be at peace. It's possible to have equanimity when the whole body is burning in pain, the mind can be completely calm and quiet, cool like a cool pond. You might have to stay very attentive right there at the mind because it's ready to start boiling. But it's possible, if you're very attentive, to leave the mind equanimous and not be troubled by the pain. I'm struck very much, that probably many of you are, of the tremendous comfort we have at Spirit Rock. I suspect that if the Dharma, down through these 2,500 years, was dependent on this level of comfort for its survival, <laughs> it wouldn't have survived. <laughs> and I think it's really wonderful we've created this center here. And I, I, wouldn't, I don't want it any other way. But it lends itself, I believe, to the notion that we need to be comfortable. We should be comfortable. It lends itself to actually a very—it uh, lends itself to kind of a narrowing of the scope of what uh, Buddhist practice is all about. It lends itself to narrowing to it's all all about my meditation. And let's make the conditions as comfortable as I can, so my meditation can be as comfortable as possible, so that I can have whatever. Part of the the value of uncomfortable situations in practice is that it challenges this part of us that want, always wants to be comfortable, and it shows us that it's possible to be at ease in uncomfortable circumstances. And it is a little bit of a you're getting a little bit of a you're getting a little bit shortchanged here at Spirit Rock. You know, there's a little kind of you know it's a little bit of a It wasn't quite designed right, you know. If they spent a little bit more money, they could have made it a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> so, the, so it also helps in practice if we start getting disenchanted with pleasure and the role that pleasure can have in our life. There's a, as we, I think we all know, there's a tremendous addiction to pleasure in our society. All addiction, or most addictions, especially to substances, is partly an addiction to pleasure. Seeking pleasure, wanting pleasure. There can be seeking pleasure in meditation. There can be great pleasure in deep, concentrated states. And we're not using those states for wisdom, but just to, just to support our habit in meditation. Some people have this assumption when things are uncomfortable or there's pain or things are unpleasant, it means that something is wrong. It means something is out of place. It means something is wrong with me. I'm off. I'm mistaken. It's my fault. There's all these complicated ideas that we hold on to and latch on to. We're disenchanted with Pleasure, to dissuade ourselves from all the beliefs we have around what discomfort means. So, those are these three, these three great attachments, three great outflows opinions, concepts, ideas, becoming, being, identity, and pleasure, comfort. I don't know what proportions it is, but I think that a big percentage of our attachments are in the first category. It's attachment to concepts and ideas, which basically comes down, attachment to thoughts, which basically comes down to attachments to something which is insubstantial, the most insubstantial thing in the world, that actually you can't even grasp. It's an illusion that we're grasping. It's an illusion. John's wonderful analogy of putting your hand in the fire to grasp it. Thoughts are more ephemeral than even the fire and you can't hold on. I love that analogy because, you know, you can put your hand in the fire and burn your hand and then blame the fire. You could say, it's reasonable to say the fire is causing your hand to be burned. But spiritually or karmically or psychically, that's not really where the responsibility lies. It's in the grasping for the fire. We need to turn around. Buddhist practice is a practice of turning around and seeing where is the responsibility. Where is the cause, the psychic or the karmic or the spiritual cause for our suffering. And it's always in our grasping. So we have to kind of begin appreciating the tremendous power of grasping and begin taking responsibility for that grasping, understand it. Part of the reason why we focus so much on being in the present moment in this practice is not because the present moment is the god of American Buddhism, but rather because the present moment is a place we have a chance of seeing What only happens in the present moment, and that is grasping. Grasping doesn't happen in the future. It will happen in the future, but it's not happening in the future now. Grasping is happening right now. To see that and take responsibility for it. It's a very hard thing to do. And that's why it takes a lot of compassion and kindness gentleness and time to develop the practice of mindfulness, to develop all the acceptance we can. So we grasp. In the second chapter of the Dhammapada, begins with this verse. It says, Attentiveness is the path of the deathless. Inattention is the path of death. Those who are inattentive are as if already dead. Those who are attentive will never die. The Buddha was pursuing the deathless. And in doing so, he was pursuing something which was a goal of Indian religions for centuries before him. And maybe he didn't understand what he was looking for when he started. I don't know. But when he discovered the deathless, he certainly understood that the deathless was different than what earlier seekers had been seeking. Earlier seekers had been seeking an elixir of immortality. That's which would allow a person to live forever. Somehow this being, this self, would somehow survive and never be, do- never be born, never, never die. But the Buddha himself was subject to sickness, old age, and death. His his enlightenment did not stop those things from happening to the Buddha. He also was very much involved in that life of impermanence that leads to death. So when he discovered the deathless, it didn't make him immortal. So what did he understand when he understood the deathless? What did he see? Att- a- attentiveness is the path to the deathless. The... Um, Our attention, our awareness, which is such a precious part of who we are, is generally taken up with things that it's aware of. I hit I hit the bell, your awareness, you're aware of the sound of the bell. You think in your mind, what's gill up to? And you're aware of that thought. Awareness has objects that it's aware of. When we grasp, we're grasping at those objects of awareness. Sometimes we're we're grasping at things outside of us in the world, and sometimes we're grasping at things inside of us. But we're grasping at objects. The five hindrances are very much arise when we begin objectifying the world, living in that object world. It's very obvious with the first two hindrances. Desire is when you have a desire for an object. Aversion is when you want some, want some object to be away. You're living in the world of a kind of subject-object world. Objectifying. You're involved in the concepts out there or ideas or things out there. It's possible to heal that objectification by not getting rid of the hindrance but pulling back from the object and dropping into the felt sense of having a desire or that aversion. The felt sense is not involved in objectification. You don't have to get rid of it, but you can just feel it as 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 a felt sense in the present moment. But our awareness is always taken up with objects, generally. My understanding is that the deathless is awareness, which in a sense, an awareness which is not taken up with the objects of the world. That when, it's kind of like the timeless. Timeless is another word for the deathless. Where does the the timeless occur? Is the timeless going to occur Tuesday at noon when you're driving across the Golden Gate Bridge in traffic? Sure. But the timeless is happening right now. The timeless present, it's often called. There's something about the present, this moment right now, that people can feel. You can, you can maybe feel, maybe vaguely, maybe strongly. There's something timeless about this, something almost eternal. In the timeless present, this is exactly the same timeless present that the Buddha experienced when he was alive. In the timeless present, there's no difference, no separation in the Buddha and us. The deathless belongs to something right now. The deathless doesn't belong in the future. It's not a promise for eternal life. It's not something in the past. It's only available in the present right now. When the, when the mind is not grasping, when there's not involved in the objects of things out there that's going to manipulate and, and change and adjust, And this is why it takes thinking outside the box. Because if it's not an object that you can manipulate or control or use for a sense of self or use for security or whatever, what good is it? Why bother? It doesn't really fit any of the categories of things that we think are so important in our lives. It's not very productive it's also called the birthless so it doesn't give birth to anything it doesn't in and of itself provide us with great understanding or even insight so it can be uninteresting for us because we're so we, we tend to be so addicted and so interested in our thoughts our image our identity our pleasure that the idea that there's something else that's not of any of those categories It seems so foreign, so odd, so uninteresting, so threatening, so boring. Attentiveness is the path to the deathless. I think it's the nature of awareness. That awareness, in and of itself, has the quality of seeming or feeling deathless. So, to get this, from a, get 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 to this from another angle. When the Buddha attained his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he he attained Nirvana, and. That nirvana, is, the word nirvana is probably best translated into English by the word release. He was released. Many of us are seeking relief. The Buddha was not seeking for relief, he was seeking for release. And release is a little bit goes against the grain of an American notion of freedom. The American notion of freedom is a freedom to do whatever my impulses are. Freedom to buy as much as I want. <laughs> the freedom that Buddha talked about was not a, that kind of freedom. But rather, he was very, very clearly, it was a freedom from. Freedom from our impulses. Freedom from greed. from hate, delusion. Freedom from the constrictions on the heart, freedom from our drives, our addictions. So release is another definition of no longer, to give up the grasping, to release the grasping. So if you hold your fist really tight, and then you open your fist, what happens to the fist? It can't be found. My hand is still here, but the fist is no longer here. There's an absence. There's an amazing absence. If someone's coming to you and ready to punch you out, you're very happy to see this. In a sense, the deathless is the mind that doesn't grasp. In a sense, the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to be open handed. The ultimate goal of Buddhism, in a sense, doesn't really exist. Isn't that something? Imagine going to your friends and other religions and saying, well, our ultimate goal doesn't really our ultimate goal doesn't really exist. at least we know it. (laughs) But it's so phenomenally profound to have the hand open, even though the fist no longer is there. The non-grasping, to release our grasping, to have trust life enough, to trust ourselves enough, to have the discipline to stay there to release. You know, it's one of the most profound and beautiful things can happen in life. The greatest happiness and the greatest peace is found in the deathless, even though our conventional way of understanding cannot relate to it. So as you sit here and practice. We're practicing mindfulness, which is a very simple practice. It's so simple, we, 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 we miss how simple it is. It's a simple practice of noticing what's happening right now. And what we want to do, in the pra- as we notice, moment after notice, mo- moment, a number of things happen. One is, we learn something deeply about the things we notice. We learn about our attachments, our pleasure, our opinions, our, atta- our sense of self, and slowly, hopefully, we'll learn to be disenchanted with these things. The tremendous passion, passionate way in which we attach to these things begins to soften. We realize that the objects that we're so always co- so concerned about maybe don't, can't really provide us with that ultimate happiness that's possible. But as the mindfulness gets stronger, the other thing that begins happening is that the mindfulness itself becomes like a brighter and brighter light, like a muscle that gets stronger and light that gets stronger and stronger. And then at some point you might be able to understand or see, feel, that there's something in the nature of that awareness which feels timeless or deathless or which feels like it doesn't cling. Awareness itself never clings. Never. So as the awareness gets stronger part of who you are, you discover that part of you which doesn't cling, and that part of you gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so, so just simply that movement itself begins providing tremendous freedom. But it's very important that you maintain the continuity of of mindfulness, which means you don't get tripped up by the objects of what you're aware of. You simply keep noticing, moment after moment, what's happening now, what's happening now. The bumper sticker for Buddhists, for Vipassana students, is, I don't stop for anything. (laughs) And it takes real discipline to do that, to stay and be present, and be present, present. And here comes this great important issue, notice. So you notice that. You accept it. You bring your attention to it. You don't discount it. You don't disrespect it. But you, you, you don't stop for it. You just keep looking at it and keep the noticing the flow of attention. If you're going to sharpen a knife, it doesn't matter what whetstone you use. If you want to sharpen your mindfulness, it doesn't matter what object of mindfulness you have. It doesn't really matter what experience you're having. The point of mindfulness practice is not any particular experience you're having. The point is to sharpen the mindfulness on the experience you happen to be having right now. And as that mindfulness gets stronger, as you have the courage and the confidence and the trust that it's okay to keep going and not stop and get hung up by what's what's happened. Just keep noticing, noticing, noticing. You might notice something about the timeless, the deathless. You might notice something about the nature of non-clinging. And that non-clinging, non-grasping, I would recommend to you, I suggest to you, lays at the heart of our Buddha nature, the heart of our, the phenomenal beauty inside of each of us. Each of us is endowed with great precious beauty. I wish when you came for interviews I could just take a mirror and show you what I see. Each of you that come, I see so much beauty and light and sincerity. Some of you are sitting there and thinking, well, everyone but me, right? (laughs) So may you all enter into the gate of the deathless. It stands open waiting for all of you. Thank you for listening.